Hi, everyone. Okay. I'm Claire Stewart, the festival director of the Sydney Film Festival, and it's great to see you all out here this afternoon. With me to my left, a woman who needs very little introduction to all of you, I'm sure, uh, the fabulously talented Miranda July. Thank you. Before we start our talk, it would be helpful for me to get a sense of who in the crowd saw the film last night, saw the future last night. Could I just have a show of hands? And who saw it this morning? Oh. Okay. And who hasn't seen it? No, you don't have to reveal. Oh, there are a few of you. Okay. A, you guys are really important too, because someone has to see it when it comes out. So, <laughs> so two people will go. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess um, for those of you who did see uh, the screening last night, we did a Q&A after that screening. We may go over some of the same territory a little bit, so forgive us because obviously there's a lot of people from this morning's screening who haven't heard Miranda on some of those subjects. Um, I'm going to start by... I, I, it's always a challenge, I think, to... Do you structure a talk according to the logic of someone's career or the themes that they deal with? And the themes that come through in all of your work are so strong, I think I want to focus on, on them first. And, and one of those is the idea of horror in everyday life. It's, horror is, in filmic terms, something that you know, people approach in a very sort of genre-based way, but you have a very strong understanding of horror that occurs in small ways and in the ways that we live our life. Can you talk a little bit about that, that idea of horror and what attracts you to it? Well, life is, is kind of horrifying. Um, but I think that feeling, um, when you feel that, like just in a little, like what, I'm trying to think of something that happened today that was horrifying because I think it, it it comes up in a, a lot of little ways and um, and it's like being surprised but also um, it's more than that it's like feeling uh, like a lot like aware of being alive or something you know or maybe it's it's like a brief moment where you um, have a little like mind body oneness you know like you are um, by being afraid, you, you are with your body for a moment. Um, and so uh, uh, it's a good thing to, to get at. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was kind of vague. I guess we, we, we can, you can ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I mean, one of the things that I remember first stumbling across your work um, many years ago with a, a video series called Joni for Jackie, which was kind of like a chain letter made out of videos. And at the same time as that, you were doing um, quite a bit of fanzine work as well. And I'm really interested because we're talking about the mid 90s then, and now more than 15 years later, the environment around how we communicate and how we build and make things and send them out into the world has changed very radically. And as an artist and a filmmaker and a performer, you have really adapted to that or with that technological change. So I'm, I'm interested, I guess, in terms of your practice. Uh, you, you know, how right. do you tackle that relationship with technology? Yeah. I mean, for sure, when I was doing the the fanzines and Joni for Jackie, this would have seen that the whole, the Apple store didn't exist at all. Um, and, and all the things that are sold here. But I was always really interested in, um, how do you create your own audience? Like I, I never believed in the idea that, that, uh, if you make your, thing that, you know, someone might come and discover you or that somehow magically people should be interested. Um, it seemed to me at the very beginning that the best thing I could do um, 
for myself, really, was to support other young women making movies. And so what, what the Joni for Jackie thing was, was just, um, and, and you have to remember, there wasn't digital yet, so it was very unusual that, that I would meet another woman who made movies. And so I invited women to send me their short films, and then I would compile them onto tapes um, of like 10 movies each so that they could see each other's work. Um, and I started doing that before I made movies. It was kind of my film school, my way of, of feeling like, okay, if, if all these other women can do it, I can do it too. Um, and that, of course, is like instant on one of those computers. I mean, it, it's so easy to get that, that feeling now, that sense of community. So in that sense, um, all this is really appealing to me. You know, I feel like uh, it's really easy to work, to, to bring people together through, you know, like I've been making short movies in my hotel room here at the Hilton and, you know, you put it up and 50,000 people have seen it, like, later that day. Like, um, on the other hand, uh, you know, no offense to this store, but it's, it's almost deadly for my creativity. Um, the level of distraction uh, is like, I mean, could it get any more, you know? Could I, could I check my email any more? Like, basically, I can't check it now because I'm sitting here, but I promise you that I will, like, within, you know, 10 minutes of, like, leaving all of you because you never know, something really exciting might have happened. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously, that feeling was, existed before, um, the internet and Apple and all that. I mean, you know, that desire for um, a little hit of somebody cares about me or thought about me. Um, but uh, for someone like me, and I guess I'm not alone or they wouldn't be doing so well, um, it really, like, I have to have an active struggle with that because um, I could just succumb and literally not make anything ever again, you know? Just kind of wait for the response um, constantly, all the time. So it's a mixed thing. I mean, it's both really liberating and really important, I think, for especially filmmakers and musicians and people making work with very little support. Um, and uh, it's a real fight to keep your creative space and your 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 emptiness in a way. I mean, I think, you know, art comes from that, those moments where you don't know what to do with yourself next. And so as uncomfortable as they are, you know, you have to fight to preserve them. And that's something that I think you can see uh, an interest tracing through, well, both feature films, me and you and everyone we know, and the future. Um, the, the idea of how you create that space for your characters as well and the, the, the whole concept of communication and how difficult on the one hand and increasingly easy that becomes. So how do you sort of juggle that space when you are considering your characters or developing your characters? Right, I mean, I guess... I guess I'm always drawn to characters that have like profound doubt, you know, are um, like kind of uh, actively engaged in um, all the things that they, that are stopping them from doing what they want to do. Um, and yet despite that are strangely bold because uh, I think it's a mistake to think that boldness comes from confidence only, you know? And so, I, uh, I mean, that's not, you know, my experience of, of just people is that in some ways you can, you can doubt yourself and doubt yourself and say, no, I'm not going to do that, and then you do it. You know, you do it because there's something else in you that finally is, like, so sick of... Of what of like what you're doing to yourself in your head that you just um, that in a way it's your endless doubt that makes you bold in the end um, 
And not that that boldness is, is in the right direction. Like so often with my characters and with myself, like the bold move is like completely wrong. You know, it's like um, the thing that takes you away from your goal. But it almost doesn't matter because it's not, you know, like life isn't a straight line and certainly a narrative in a movie like, you know, to have things end up where you want, it would be pretty boring if you went straight there. So with the future, I understand that um, it kind of developed out of a performance art piece originally. Can you tell us about that performance work and then how you kind of drew from that into the film and, and the story of the film? Right. Um, after I finished my first feature, uh, Me and You and Everyone We Know, I, I very much did not want to make another movie right away. It, it seemed... Um, I just felt self-conscious, frankly. And uh, I love to perform, and that space always seems a lot freer to me. Um, like, it's a lot more up for grabs what a performance even is, you know? So uh, I started writing a performance, and I think the thing I was most interested in was uh, the audience participation. It, it, it like, like the future was about a couple and a woman who has an affair. Um, but in the performance, I cast a real couple from the audience each night to play the couple and, and then a real single man. And so it all really happened on some level. And there was also a talking cat and a shirt that moved by itself and um, stopping time. So all those things were in, in it, but it was kind of like a like an acid trip version of the movie, you know? Like, I, I wasn't all that concerned with, like, narrative. Um, and it was great. It was totally hair-raising to do. I did it five times in New York successfully and realized that any second now, it was not going to work. Um, <laughs> I was One night I was going to, you know, cast a couple that was going to just destroy the show. Um, so I... I suddenly really wanted to make a movie. Um, I wanted the control <laughs> that comes with a movie, and I also just was ready and was happy that I had kind of tricked myself into a story that I, I felt like would be interesting to me for, for years to come, because it takes so long to make a movie. Um, and yeah, so then I began the process of, of making it real, you know, putting it in the real world. Yeah. I think that shift, and I mentioned this last night, the shift that happens with Sophie when uh, she really changes, makes a, a sort of abject decision to change her reality and goes into a reality that actually threatens to be even more passive than the one that she's already in. And this kind of really moves the film, like it's a radical move in, in terms of where the film goes. Can you, uh, can you talk about that and I guess that notion of um, just uh, abandoning yourself to mm. passivity that I think comes through in that move? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever... Uh, had the fantasy that maybe you could you could up so badly that you wouldn't actually have to do the thing that you're supposed to do you know i remember having this feeling like in in school actually like you know maybe i'll I, if i just like throw myself in the gutter you know i won't have to do my book report or something you know like just and maybe someone will come along and, and find me and take care of me and I'll be their child now. Or I, you know, just like that kind of fantasy is very old and familiar to me. And I think um, I make great demands on myself uh, every day, have very high expectations. And, um, and so I made a, a character that, that does that, that gets so stuck... Um, and, and kind of, you know, just absolutely paralyzed and can't, can't do what she wants to do, which is make a dance. And, um, yeah, and so rather than break out of that, she, uh, she, 
she kind of picks herself up and puts herself in a different life where, where she's watched. Um, her, her hope is that if, if someone could just watch her all the time, she wouldn't have to be. She wouldn't have to try. Um, which is, of course, not a feminist thought, really, per se. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is um, in the sense that, like, anything you feel while being a feminist is, is one, you know? I mean, and, and uh, so it's not something that everyone will relate to. I knew that Claire would. Um, <laughs> and, and beyond that, it's all, it's all gravy. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the way that you work with people of different ages. It's something that really strikes me in both feature films um, and also in uh, Nest of Tens, right. that you have a kind of fascination with very young people and a fascination with very old people as well. You're kind of one of the few directors that actually doesn't kind of just pitch their age demographic in a, in, in a certain way. So can you, can you talk about what interests you in that kind of scale, I guess? Yeah. Um, well, with, with my first movie and with Nest of Tens, which was a short movie I made before, I was specifically interested in these strange couples. Um, so like a, a little boy and a, a middle-aged woman. Like, could that be a couple, you know? like almost even a sort of romantic couple in a way that isn't offensive somehow. Um, like those, that, those were the kind of great challenges of that movie. Um, and in this movie, I, I wasn't consciously thinking about that at all. There was no old man in the script originally. Um, in fact, I was struggling with the script and I put it away for a little while and... Um, just to get out of my own head, which I think is some of what draws me to those characters that are not my age, um, I started interviewing people selling things in the classifieds. In the, um, there's like a penny saver is what it's called in, in the US, a booklet. And, uh, and I was interested in, in who doesn't have computers, speaking of computers, um, uh, because I knew those people would be selling things through Craigslist if they did have a computer. Um, and so I met all these different people selling things through the classifieds, and one of them was a, an old man um, at the end of his life. He talked about that a lot, that he was at the end of his life. And he uh, had all this sort of uncanny resonance with the movie, um, with... with um, the themes of it and just the, the thoughts I was having about, about time and mortality. And so I cast him in the movie. Uh, he's playing himself. And, and so it's funny, I didn't, you know, I can't believe now that I made two movies with two men at the end of their lives. Um, that, but to me, it's like, well, I didn't, you know, Joe just came into my life like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have the idea of him. I never would have thought of him, but I guess it's a certain interest and like openness to that that leads me there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think another sort of major character that's very consistent in, uh, in both films, in both Me and You and The Future is Los Angeles itself. So has that had a kind of uh, I guess an impact on, has the city itself had an impact on the way that you think about your storytelling and the way that you structure your stories? Right. I mean, it's nice to hear you say that. I actually think I'm, I'm not that great at incorporating place into movies. You know, I always hear people talk about, like, the city is almost a character in the movie, you know, and I'm like, so so uninterested really in in place i mean i like the the details and i like the people um but this movie mostly takes place in inside so um I, and and very much inside people too so i, I kind of um 
I don't know. I feel like I, ha I, am not, I, I can't really answer that very well because I don't even think I'm really good at that. So when you yeah. were saying it's nice to hear you say that, you didn't really mean it? No, it's, ni <laughs> it's nice because it makes me think like, oh, maybe I, maybe I am good at that and I just don't know it, you know? <laughs> a yeah. Another thing that really strikes me in your work is the idea of looking out and looking in. A lot of your characters are actually you know, quite literally looking outside of right. spaces, outside of themselves, as well as turning in. And that's most obviously represented in the, the short film, The Amateurist, which is, you know, precisely that structure. But what kind of interests you in, in, um, in interiority and exteriority and those kind of ideas? Yeah, I think... Um, and voyeurism, I guess. Voyeurism, right. Uh, well, for me, it's just such a, I, I think it's because I, I spiral down inside so far and then I'll, you know, I'll just almost accidentally like look up and be sort of shocked to see like the whole world there and it, it'll seem really, really wonderful and often like um, the solution, like there'll be some, some real thing. Uh, that's the solution to something that I was so utterly sure had no solution. Um, uh, but I think probably if I was like a little more engaged in the world all the time, that, that the drama of sort of looking in and looking out and the switch between those, you know, I probably wouldn't notice it so much. It wouldn't be so abrupt. Um, but I guess to me, that's like one of the great pleasures of living, you know, that you're, you're both yourself and you're like entirely lost and um, goof. Yeah, it's funny looking at your specific faces like that woman there, like, what is she thinking? You know, <laughs> something entirely real and all important to her. And it's not just about me, you know, like, um, she's nodding, like, it's true. <laughs> We've had verification. Um, uh, and that is like, it's such a simple thing, but that's, it's like always kind of an amazing, uh, breathtaking relief from being myself. And, and you, you forget it every, again and again, and then you remember it again and again throughout the day. And, um, and the things that remind you, that kind of startle you out of yourself, um, good and bad, are, uh, you know, are the things that make me want to write, you know? The things, when I pull my notebook out, that's usually because that has just happened. Yeah. And let's talk about your infamous notebook. What is yeah. that, that process and that relationship that you have with your notebook? Because there, there is so much in your work that kind of almost records these absurdities from everyday life. Right. Well, there is, um, there is a notebook. We were talking about how lost we feel without our purses. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're like, really? Can we leave them in this room? Um, the, the notebook is up in a purse, <laughs> up in a room. And, uh, you know, it's just like your own notebook with ideas and thoughts written in it. Um, I, I write down like a, a letter in the corner of each page for what type of idea it is, you know? So like P for performance, A for art, N for novel, even sometimes like B for business, like a business idea. <laughs> but I never go back and look at those, you know? <laughs> it's like a fleeting moment, like, you know, maybe I'll be smarter about this. Um, uh, but I guess it gives me some sense of control and a feeling like I'm really gonna use these ideas um, and often, you know, I'll have one and I'll be like really comfortable in bed and I'll have the idea and I'll think of, I think it was um, uh, in a, some Joan Didion book, maybe one of you remembers it, that uh, she said like, you have to write it down. You, you won't remember it and that could be something very important and very useful. You don't even really know at the time. And so I, you know, I pull myself up, I'm like, King Joan Didion. I have to get up, write this down. <laughs> yeah. 
Other questions in the audience? Uh, there are ro roving microphones, so please just wait until a microphone comes to you. This is it. This is the woman who had the <laughs> interior light. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Miranda, um, how do you see your future? And do you, do you plan for it? Obviously, with the notebook, you somewhat plan. But, or do you like to kind of see what happens? Right. I'm a planner, for sure. Uh, but somewhat loosely. I mean, just like, I know the next three things I want to make somehow, you know? And um, although it is getting weirder as I get older, um, and some of this is in the movie, but, you know, I haven't stopped thinking about it since the movie, <laughs> the future. Um, and I haven't stopped getting older. And um, to be honest, 37 is the first, I'm 37. It's the first age where I've kind of hesitated saying it. Like, it just seems like, well, that's not cute. Like, that's not a cute, cool girl. But... So, so I, it, it really just hit me in like the last month, like, oh, okay, this whole getting older as a woman thing, I'm going to have to do this, like, in front of everyone, <laughs> and, and, and I don't want to lie about it. I know that's an option um, to try. There's so many ways you could try to not get older um, <laughs> publicly. And it's, it's pretty hard um, not having a ton of examples of, like, I want to be like that woman, you know, she's so cool, how she's, you know, that's like an awesome 59, you know, like, I don't have that. I have, like, uh, yeah, there's, like, a big void <laughs> right there. Um, so... Uh, Hopefully everyone's going to go in on this with me because I'd hate to be the only old person. <laughs> um, so if we can all just agree right now um, to do it really well and together. I'm, I'm really only talking to the women in the room because I'm sorry, but all you men just get handsomer and, and more powerful, <laughs> um, which is uh, great. I want to do that too. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's one answer. Um, Miranda, your character in the film seemed to have a difficult relationship to dance. Right. I just wondered what your relationship to the creative process is, whether it be writing or directing or acting. Is it a difficult oh, relationship? Oh, to my creative process. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a pretty fraught relationship to the creative process. I mean, it, it's both my greatest joy, you know, I think it's the way that I am, that I love myself the most, you know, I have a lot of ambivalence about myself and in other regions, you know, but when I'm making things, I can often be quite open to, to what comes forth, um, but I have a ton of fear that I won't be able to do it or it won't be good, um, and so it, it's not quite as bad as the character in, in my movie, but that wasn't hard to access or anything. And, and it's sort of embarrassing. I mean, I really didn't want to make a movie about that. I was like, what a loser thing. <laughs> like, why draw attention to that? You know, when I could just be cool about it for a second. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like, well, this is something that it appears I'm going to wrestle with for my whole life. So maybe it would be worth taking a moment to just kind of look at that fear, you know, as mundane um, as it is. It's, it's like a real daily villain, you know. Um, yeah, so it's, it's both. It's, it's the best thing, and it's um, terrifying. Yeah. Yes. I was wondering about it being a German co-production and the participation of Film 4, and is that just a question of financing, or because it seems like a quintessentially American film? Right. Um, well, I, I couldn't really get financing in America. Uh, it was the recession, and I didn't, I didn't have a big star, you know, I had the cast that I wanted. Um, and you, it's, it's, 
it's pretty much impossible to get an independent film financed with no star in the U.S. Um, there is, uh, you know, especially at that time, and I, I don't think it's gotten better. So I was lucky in that the last movie did well in these other countries, and um, and and the book did well too, especially in Germany. So. Uh, these countries also that have more of a history of an auteur cinema and weren't scared at all by the idea of the script and, and me and um, they pulled together and uh, we pulled out this tiny, tiny amount of money. I mean, it really was not that much bigger than my first movie. Um, I shot it in 21 days. Uh, it was brutal, you know, like pretty pretty hard but um that just is it just is how it is there's not uh there's not some way around that other than making a different kind of movie yeah hi just want to say hi from a fellow american east coast oh, hi. um i was just wondering the little girl that um i think is the daughter of is it marshall just wondering there's a really interesting and peculiar scene in there where she buries herself um and I'm just wondering, I mean, I guess I saw that as quite symbolic of, I suppose, a sense of um, logic and reason in, in your character, where you sort of kind of go, right, I've made this impulse decision to, to be in this situation, like the little girl who wants to bury herself, and then kind of in the middle of the night decides, wait a minute, this isn't what I wanted to do, and changes her mind. Is that, I'm just wondering what your feelings were on her character in the film, because I thought it was really kind of just this really interesting and random feature. Right. I mean, yeah, there's so many things I, I could say about that. Um, probably in the simplest thing that, I, that it had to do, and this is not um, even as interesting as the things you're talking about, but in a, in a sort of story sense, it was really important for me that, that my character um, realized that there, there was a real little girl that needed to be watched and that it wasn't her. Um, and that that had to happen for, for my character to, to basically kind of grow up in a, in a moment and, um, and, and wake up. And uh, so that, uh, the burying herself, yeah, is like a, it cuts a few different things in my mind what that means, but I guess, uh, yeah, the simplest answer is um, she needed to be uh, a little bit in danger or doing something um, that in order to be saved. Hi. Um, this isn't a question just about the movie, I guess, but... Um, with all your work, do you find it really difficult having family, I guess that includes close friends and stuff, um, I guess read into your work and get um, into your inner thoughts? family and friends read my work? Yeah, or yeah. Um, watch your movies and yeah. whatever and feel like you're kind of exposing that part of you that you'd otherwise maybe not do yeah. that to them? Right. Are you a writer? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So you deal with that. It's a weird thing. Um, I mean, it's different. There's for for friends. It's usually. I mean, like this movie. I feel like at the end of the day, I probably made it for about five of my best friends, <laughs> and I'm really excited for them to see it. I mean, I made it for everyone, but I'm really. Um, they will know. Um, it will seem so familiar to them. Uh, so that's very sweet, and they are also my support system. My parents, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what my parents thought of this movie. Um, <laughs> I think they sort of wait for the general consensus to come out, um, and then they're just happy if it's good, you know, <laughs> if there's a, and they're, they're very proud. Um, my brother, I remember, he, he was at Sundance where it premiered, and um, he said it was pretty hard to watch, and then he really just couldn't help it. He, he didn't want to talk to the actor that played the guy that um, 
says, the guy who wears the necklace and says, like, I'm ready to f- and he's like, I know he's, I know it was just acting, I just don't want to talk to him. Like, I just, I don't feel good about him, I don't feel comfortable with him, you know? He's like the sweetest guy in the world, you know? But, um, but I, I thought that was, I was like, ah, it's my big brother, you know? Looking out for even the fictional me, you know? <laughs> yeah just a minor question. Uh, congratulations on a beautiful film. You. Uh, your, your film and your work seems to be so strange and quirky, but so true, like so, you know, possible. So just interested in your decision to put the magic in, the, the stopping of the time. Uh, right. I think I was trying to make uh, emotional things and things that felt true to me. I was trying to get at them the same way that I do when I'm writing fiction, which is to use a metaphor usually, and I, I really love, um, you know, finding the perfect metaphor to get at the feeling. And, um, and, but in a book, you know, you're, you're trotting out all the words describing that metaphor, hoping that people will see it in their head. And in the movie, you can just show it to them. <laughs> you can say, like, it was, you know, it wasn't, it didn't just feel like, you know, he didn't just feel like he wanted to stop time in that moment. He did. And here, you can feel exactly what that felt like because there's no, uh, no other thing to feel. That's all that's on the screen, you know. And that's so satisfying. I mean, it's, it's um, really like the magic. Those are um, my favorite parts and the parts I was sort of most confident about, you know, like when I was pitching the movie, I would be like, you know, there's a talking cat. And, there, you know, these things would seem like such, you know, like who needs, you know, a movie star? I've got stopping time because you're in so much pain. Like that seems like a famous, like it's famous to me. I don't know, like ka-ching, you know, but I don't, <laughs> that turned out just to be me, yeah. Hi, uh, last night at the Q&A, you were talking about John Bryan uh, right. doing the score for the film, and you said that he'd um, done the music for Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love, which you said were some of your favorite films. Yeah. I was wondering whether they were a particular influence on this work, because it struck me that they were both... They're both made by the same filmmaker, as well as both being <laughs> set in Los Angeles. Well, I just, yeah. I, I mean, I like movies that Paul Thomas Anderson didn't make also. But <laughs> since the question was about John Bryan and they work together a lot, I, I got myself in that corner and you are picking up on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Magnolia isn't probably one of my favorites, but Punch Drunk Love really is. And I just rewatched Magnolia and it is, it is has some really amazing performances. Um, but that was the whole question, right? Or was there more? Just um, <laughs> to, well, maybe, maybe yeah. expand oh, on, on what that are, by other saying... Movies? Yeah, other, other movies. movies. Other just movies. to prove that I do like movies that other people made. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not... I, I, I should say I'm not a, um, like a cinephile, you know? Like, this question's always really hard for me, because I don't I don't watch movies and study them um, the way a lot of filmmakers do. So I'm watching them as a fan, always forgetting to like look at how it was shot or look at you know the light or something like that. I'm just like believing that it's all really happening. You know. Um, that said, uh, there's a, a great movie from the '40s called Random Harvest. Has anyone heard of it? I'm guess. Oh, really? You've heard of it? That's so wonderful. I, it's, <laughs> um, I, I, I like movies that have uh, often that have some sort of memory, something about memory or uh, like other worlds. Um, Somewhere in time, not a great movie, but it also it also has a uh, sort of other worlds in it. Um, I love I love that movie. Um, Oasis is a Korean movie um, that also has something sort of surreal and done in a really um, simple way that's just very breathtaking. You can look that up. Um, yeah, good movie. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's three. Hi. Uh, I was wondering what you would like people to take away from your movie. Um, 
I mean, take away. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a sad movie, you know, especially in the end. And um, I guess I hope that it's the kind of sadness that feels open, like you feel opened up by that sadness. Because I think it's a pretty interesting emotion, like it has a lot of kind of colors to it. And it can be almost more open than happiness, you know? Um, so I hope that people go back into their own lives with some kind of useful sadness. That would be good. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, you, you mentioned before, you know, when you write in your notebook and you start mentioning things about business and <laughs> you just ignore it in the future. And it always seems that, you know, um, being creative and being business-minded don't come in the same basket. Yet here we are, we're sitting in the Apple store, you're staying at the Hilton, the Sydney Film Festival. How, what do you feel you've done right in that respect in, in terms of business and in terms of producing that, that has enabled you to make a career out of being creative? Well, of course I don't know. It might have worked out even better if I had done other things, so I don't know. But uh, I guess to me, it's, I always want to feel like... Um, I'm making choices where I can't fall. I can't be knocked down by someone, uh, someone like losing interest or something. And so um, that means I have to make it all really be exactly what I want and what makes sense and is meaningful to me because then that can't really be um, dismantled. So for example, after the first movie, um, you know, it's, there's, there's people who have the job of going to Sundance and sort of finding the new thing and, and being like, why don't you do something bigger and better, you know, movie-wise. And um, so when they came to me, even though that's very appealing, um, and maybe I should have done that, I, I thought, okay, I... I have to say no to this and I have to finish my book of short stories, um, even though that's very not glamorous and sort of lonely. Um, and, but maybe this, will, this movie stuff will help me um, get a literary agent and get a publisher, which it did do. And it meant for me that I felt like I had more room um, for all the different kinds of things that I want to do, um, not just filmmaking, and that was important for me, but it's not a, it's, understand that it wasn't like a up and down move, it's more like lateral, and I think uh, I make a lot of decisions that way that more have to do with like, what's going to make my life more interesting and more like the kind of life I want to live, as opposed to often striking while the iron's hot, you know? Like, I wish I could do that, but you have to kind of let go of some things in order to have other things. And I think I, you know, I'm often make, you know, I've, I make it harder to get financing by, by working in this way, you know, for example, but things like that. It's kind of boring. That, I mean, not a boring question, but, you know. Oh, but it, it, it okay. strikes me that you've also been incredibly tactical and strategic about, and this could just come out of curiosity and interest, but about broadening the space in which your work might be received. So right. Joni for Jackie um, and Learning to Love You More, the, right. the internet project, which are very generous to other artists and, and uh, including people who are aspiring to be artists, but th these are almost like tactical works that kind of open up a, a wider audience for you as well. Right. Yeah, I guess that's also, also seemed like a, yeah, a very fundamentally important thing that you invite people in, you know, that you, uh, if, if you're interested in people and you want to be having a conversation with them, like, it's not that hard. You just have to literally, like... In, invite them in, like ha offer something, almost like a, a service, almost like Apple invites us in, except not because um, <laughs> it's totally different. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Hi. Uh, yeah, I was wondering what your experience with dance was and why your main character was a dance teacher. Right. I'm, I'm not a dancer. I've never been... You know, I like, sometimes I'll take a dance class and I'll be like, whoa, I'm like the person bumping into everyone because I'm going the wrong way. That said, I love, <laughs> I love to dance, like at parties, you know. Um, and uh, I think, think, I was like, okay, here I go again, casting myself in my movie. And um, I've, I guess it's like, I know, I know what I'm willing to do with my body. And so it seemed like, making good use of, of me. Like if you killed an animal, you would want to use all the parts of the animal. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I should use my, my willingness to like do any old thing with my body, you know? Not, not that it's like virtuosic, you know, it's not like a black swan dance experience, but that it's specific. And, um, and if I saw another, another, actor and I liked, you know, how they moved or something, you know, it's, it's kind of objectifying myself in a happy way, <laughs> not, not in the negative way. Um, yeah, and it, it's also very visual um, and vulnerable, and so it's good, a good thing to me for, for a movie. Hi, um, I was just wondering how you came about to decide on the Beach House song and the song that was used as the signal in the film. Right. Well, the, the Beach House song, which is the song that I danced to, actually, um, I worked on the dance with uh, the, the one I do in the shirt, which isn't very choreographed. Obviously, I'm sort of just bumping into things, but I did need somebody um, watching me because I can't see myself in that shirt. Like, it doesn't help to have a mirror, you know, because uh, I can't see anything. So he would, this, this guy named Steven Recker, R-E-K-E-R, super interesting guy, um, would kind of watch me and be like, oh, that's good when you do that. And, um, and he suggested the Beach House song. He said he was just putting it on every mixtape. And it had to be really emotional, but have a, a lead-in that didn't reveal. I knew I'd be playing the lead-in like three times um, in the beginning of the movie, and then I needed it to open up the last time and turn into something with a lot of space and emotional room. So it, it did that well. Although I didn't like the first verse, I felt like it was distracting. And so I asked Beach House to like re-edit the verses. So if you, if you check that, you'll notice that it's, it's a little different from the Beach House song on the, on the album called Master of None. And then the other song, um, Peggy Lee, uh, I was hunting for a song that could be the signal. Um, originally, I had a song that was a special song between my parents um, uh, that was very resonant for me, but I realized that it, it wasn't resonant for anyone else. It was actually kind of a corny song um, that goes like, we'll be laying our hearts on the table, stumbling in. Do you know that song? Anyone? It's a deeply resonant song. Yeah. Right? Well, okay, I can't sing at all. That was, you know, not a good idea to even do that. But that was the song I had originally and was trying to replace for years. Um, and then actually my friend Carrie Brownstein, um, who's a musician and in a band, she suggested a, a different Peggy Lee song. And then that led me to this one, which has such perfect lyrics. Um, it's just, I was just like, had chills. Of course, it's a very expensive song. It's, it's like my producer was like, are you kidding me? That's like, a, you know, that's like, that song made more than all of us combined. <laughs> and she's not even alive. So, yeah. Okay, we've got time for one last question. Can we have the mic over here, please? Yes, this is it. Uh, I know a lot of people think of you as having a really specific kind of vision, but I think the word that comes to me is a very specific voice because I think the only reason that uh, the film has so much heart is the particular voice of the cat in the case of the last film, the kind of really specific voice. And also, obviously, in me, you and everyone, we know that conversation that you have where you do both sides of the dialogue. Right. And then going right back to the Ben A. Simon tests and the way you work with a voice in those. And then I actually 
heard your audible reading of your short stories. I'd also read it myself, but there, you know, I was actually finding that I was stopping in the street to because a certain bit of the way that you read it that just made it so different than my own reading of it. Ah. So I just wondered what you thought about the way that you work with your own voice right. acting in different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I really, you know, I, uh, the first things I made were performances, and then um, the first, like, objects I made were these recordings of, of my performances, which are kind of like radio plays. Um, they're DVDs that are available. Um, and I was really, I really fell in love with that, with, with recording and what you could do. Um, it was sort of before I really got into filmmaking, it was like the, the way that, uh, that I understood like technology. Actually, even before that, when I was like seven, I, I would record myself using the tape recorder and do, I do like one side of a conversation, leaving holes so that I could play it back and talk to myself. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think that has always been um, just so interesting to me. And I sort of came to realize actually with this movie that I feel um, most confident uh, in the realm of sound. Um, that that's like, I, I don't second guess myself as much as I do with the, with the picture, you know? Um, and I, and I was thinking this time around, like, ah, oh, that may have to do with, like, that I've really, it's just been so long also that I've, that I've accrued some sort of confidence there, finally. Yeah. But um, thank you. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. Well, that's a very excellent point on which to wrap. So would you please all join me in thanking the very marvellous Miranda July. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. <laughs> Thank you.